Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. We'll be wrapping up Colossians today. At least I think we will. Uh, before I get there, though, I want to tell you what was going on uh, uh, with me during praise and worship, those uh, last couple songs, the song before the last one we sang, I was just getting almost twitchy uh, with this strong uh, sense of a healing anointing. And so my first, re- my first thought was, I need to interrupt this song because I liked it. It was a kind of high energy song. And I thought, well, I'll get up there. Or maybe as soon as they're done, I'll get up there. And we'll, we'll sing it again while I lay hands on the sick. And I was just about ready to do that. Then when the song ended, I just felt restrained. Uh, not, not in an evil way. I really do believe it was the hand of God. No, we're not going to do that. And I sat there. I was just praying in the spirit. Riley could probably testify that he heard me praying in the spirit. And uh, all right, what, what are we going to do here? There's a healing. There's a message of healing. There's a work of healing happening or getting ready to happen. Uh, and uh, then the next song started. And... Uh, I thought, well, maybe we'll, uh, we'll have people come up during this song. And then the, the impression, the strong impression I got in the Spirit was not a healing line, but just to encourage people to receive as we sang that, I am healed. I am called, I am blessed, I'm healed, I'm whole. Uh, so that's what I need to get up and tell people. And then... If one of these things, you know, when I say God told me or God spoke to me, I've never heard his audible voice. But what I really felt God speaking was, I got this. This is a smart congregation. They know what they're singing. I will impress this upon them. And so what I want from you is testimonies. Who got healed during that song? Who experienced? And and then, uh, sorry, you don't mind me saying this, Nicole. She came up and told me during meet and greet that she felt her hands just burning. That there was something she had to do. And she ended up, with with her permission, she laid hands on Alice uh, Denhart. And immediately the the burning left uh, because of her obedience. And when you experience something like that, you can pray for one another. Now, I don't want everybody running willy-nilly through the congregation. Woohoo! Don't you dare jump up during my sermon and start laying hands on people. There's a time, there's a, let all things be done decently and in order. She did the right thing. She didn't grab her and tackle her into her chair. She said, I've got to pray for somebody. Is it you? Can I pray for you? But I believe, again, we are a mature enough congregation that when we're singing a song and something grabs you like that, you can receive your healing in that moment. You get inspired by what you're singing, by what you're reading. You don't have to sit there and say, oh, I hope he has a healing line. You receive your healing. So if you did, I want to know about it, okay? Because I really feel it was more than just one, one thing happening. And I'm not saying you need to rush up here and tell me now, but grab me afterward, tell me. Love to give you a chance to share it with the congregation if you're willing, okay? Now, uh, Colossians. There's a... Uh, Let's do a quick review since we're wrapping it up today. Remember that Paul is writing to a church he had not yet visited, but one still that was an outgrowth of his ministry, his missionary work. You know, in his apostolic calling, he had established several churches. And out of these churches, leaders arose who also then went, some of them uh, back to their hometowns, 
to start churches, and Epaphras was one of these. He was converted under Paul's ministry in Ephesus and then planted a church in his hometown or whatever, whether it was his hometown or not, I can't remember, but in Colossae. And it was doing well, but again, Gnostic error had started to creep in, and Paul sets out in this letter to correct it before that error goes too deep. And the result, as always, masterfully superintended by the Holy Spirit, is as far as the epistles go, the most elegant and clearly stated case for the divinity of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, again, is not a guru. He's not some mystical imparter of divine knowledge, but he is God the Son, the living word, the creator of the universe. So Paul spells out exactly who Jesus is, and then he clarifies the mission of Jesus, which again was not to impart some mystical knowledge, but to redeem fallen mankind by his own death on the cross. All right? And then to share his victory over death, which he manifested in his own resurrection. He, Christ's mission, redeem us from, uh, from sin, and then share that, that salvation and that victory over death, giving us his resurrection power. And then he goes on to, to make it clear as can be that Christ alone is sufficient for salvation. You can't add to it with philosophy, with special knowledge, with legalistic expression, and with harsh treatment of the body. He addresses every single one of these things explicitly. But turns around to say, however, it does matter what we do. Just because Christ's death and resurrection is sufficient for our salvation, that doesn't mean we can live any way we want to. It simply means that the way we live doesn't add to Christ's finished work on the cross. This is what we looked at last week in chapter 3, where it firmly states that our behavior as Christians should be different from the world around us. That the new man has a distinct character. And we are to put on the new man and put off the old man. We're reminded that sinful things, and it names several of them, uh, fornication, idolatry, covetousness, even filthy language, these things are bringing the wrath of God on the sons of disobedience. That's not us. We are not the sons of disobedience. We're the sons of God, right? But since that's not us, we should absolutely not be characterized by those things. We wrapped up with this last week. In Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, Kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell, rich, dwell in you richly. In all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And we expanded on this 
concept of the word of Christ dwelling in us richly on Wednesday night. I would encourage you to listen to that message if you weren't here. We looked at Psalm 119 and tied those two things together. Now, as we move on, what else does the Holy Spirit want to tell us about uh, what it looks like to put on the new man? This is where we're going to go because he's not done. And so we'll read, continuing, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This was kind of a weird place for a chapter division. The first verse of chapter 4 probably should be the last verse of chapter 3. But again, Paul didn't write it that way. These divisions were made long, long, long after the Bible was uh, compiled. Anyway, this is a short, what we just read is a shortened version of what we already read over in Ephesians. And the central message is there is order in God's house, in God's kingdom. The, and the starting point, which we'll look at, you can turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3.26. It says, for you all... You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Likewise, in Colossians, which we've already read this in, in chapter 3, verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, we have to be really careful to understand what Paul is saying. What he is referring to in these passages is our qualification for salvation. Okay? And, maybe even more uh, importantly, that there's no hierarchy of salvation. Because this is what he dealt with. You know, we, this came up again and again in, in the other epistles that we read, you know, like in Romans. Uh, he has to hammer this point home. That, that, that it's not like converted Jews are your first class Christians. And then you've got the Greeks. They're still Christians. We believe we're all brothers, but they're... They're not Jewish Christians, so come on. And Paul is hammering this point that that hierarchy simply does not exist in the kingdom of God. You are all Abraham's seed. So when he says, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, that's what he means. He's not saying, ignore your heritage. He, when he says, 
In Christ, there is neither slave nor free. Keep in mind, and, he's gonna, and we'll come back around to this, when he, whenever he talks about slaves or bond servants, really it's safe for us to think in terms of employers and employees. You know, we have a very narrow, specific idea of the word slave in this country because of our sad history in that arena. But that's not what the, the kind of slavery Paul is really referring to here. He's talking about people who attached themselves to wealthy people so that they could work for them and earn a living. But it was, it was just a little more binding. You couldn't just walk off the job. Not, not for a bond servant. And Paul says there's neither bond nor free. But there were. He gives instructions specifically to bond servants. All right? What's he saying? He's saying that a, a bond servant who gets saved is no less saved and no less important in the kingdom of God than the master who gets saved. That's what he's saying. It's important because then when he says there's no such, there is no male nor female, there are twisted minds who say, see, in, in God's kingdom, it doesn't matter. This is, this is what we've evolved to in this society. Gender is fluid. Paul even said so. There's neither male nor female. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's not talking about abandoning biological roles or, or societal roles. He's simply saying, bring these things under submission to Christ and that a woman is no less saved than a man and no less important in terms of her essence than any man. And this was radical thinking for his time. There's an order. There is equality in essence, but there are clearly different defined roles. And when, even though husbands and wives, Jesus affirmed this, are one flesh, Talk about equality. But somebody is the designated head of the home. And according to God, that one is the husband. We talked about this in quite a bit of detail back in Ephesians. So we don't need to uh, slice and dice it today. But we turn right around and say, husbands, love your wives. It's this sacrificial love that makes submission easy. Children. You do not get to say, I'm just as much a child of God as you are, so you don't get to tell me what to do. Just a second. I just, a little worn out. I want to sit for a while. (laughs) Remember, parents, Our aim is not to move our children from dependence on us to independence. It's to move them from dependence on us to dependence on Jesus. This is our aim. This idea that when you're 18, you get to do whatever you want is true in a very narrow legal sense. Listen to me, and I'm talking to all of the young people in this congregation. You will always be taking orders from somebody. You got to serve somebody. The great prophet Bob Dylan said that. You might as well learn to do it right by starting at home. You learn to obey 
by obeying your parents. If you think that the goal is to survive until you're 18 and you can do whatever you want, you are in for a rude awakening in the classroom, in the job, in the world of employment. You will find, especially uh, as uh, the the economy grows and uh, bosses get to be a little bit uh, choosier about who they hire, You will find that submission is a good uh, thing to have on your resume, as it were. Now, obviously, thanks for letting me sit here for a while. That, didn't, that wasn't anything aimed particularly at you guys. <laughs> obviously, Paul is writing to a Uh, He's talking about the Christian home, okay? Because when you look at this, hey, children, obey your parents. Obey your parents in all things. Now, quickly, it doesn't take a great deal of imagination. If you want to play devil's advocate, if you want to argue, how, 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 what's the first thing you'd think of if you want to argue with the Bible? Well, now, what if your parents tell you to sin? What if they tell you to commit a crime? Do you obey them? And the answer is no. Okay, if you're a Christian and your unchristian parents tell you, for instance, not to read the Bible. It's just like we are, we are commanded you know, in Romans and, in, and, uh, and elsewhere in the Bible, in the New Testament, we are commanded to submit to earthly government. You know, that God has put these, he, that he who uh, bears the sword, uh, wields the sword, doesn't, doesn't ha- bear it in vain. That God has given us human government for our protection. But we also know human government isn't always friendly to the word of God. And we have brothers and sisters that we haven't met, that we don't know, who are breaking the law, who are defying their governments simply by doing this, by meeting, by gathering, by assembling, by the order of God. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. So they are defying the law by doing that and by reading the Bible, by owning a Bible, and by preaching the gospel. These things all supersede the law. But he's talking about in the Christian home. Parents, obey, children, obey your parents. There's a blessing there. Here's the thing. Parents, our goal, again, we want to raise our children to be dependent on God to learn to follow him on their own. But we are not always going to do it right. What he's, one of the things that is included here is, I would put it this way, even when your parents make a mistake, you're wrong if you stand on that kind of principle. If you say, for instance, man, I feel like I need to sit down again. <laughs> If you say, for instance, I shouldn't have to clean that mess up. It's not my mess. Anybody ever hear anything like that in your house? It's not just me. I mean, not that I've ever heard it in my house, but I've heard about it being said. And I'm kidding. I've heard this kind of thing. I need you to pick up in here. None of it's mine. 
I didn't ask whose it was. In fact, I know some of it's mine. I want you to pick it up. But I'm not picking up her mess. I'm not picking up his mess. You're picking up this room. Now, already we're having a discussion. We're having a conversation about something that we should not be talking about. All right? I'm saying even if you are children, children, young people, if you, even if you are convinced you are right, I shouldn't have to do this. You still have to do it. Otherwise, what are you risking? You're standing on principle and throwing away the blessing of obedience. It's not worth it. You'll be blessed in the obeying. Parents, don't provoke or exasperate your children. This is a corollary to where it says, husbands, don't treat your wives bitterly. Uh, I'm I'm the husband, so I get to tell my wife to do whatever, and she has to obey. She has to submit. I'm the parent, so it doesn't matter if I'm right or wrong. Woohoo! Try to be right. (laughs) You know, there's a difference. There's a a very uh, subtle difference, and I've mentioned this before in, in, in some foreign armies. You know, I was a platoon leader. In, uh, not in some foreign armies. I interrupted myself there. I was in an infantry unit, and my job as a second lieutenant was, as a, was, was called a platoon leader. All right? In, in some armies, that same position, and in fact, I think in the Marine Corps, it's called a platoon commander. Now, the job is the same. But the thing is, there really is a difference between commanding and leading. A lieutenant really doesn't, have any business setting himself up as a commander. Lieutenant has to lead. Parents, you have the authority to command, but you have a responsibility to lead. So yes, you stand on your authority as a, as a parent when you tell your children to do something, follow through and see that they obey, but when you find that you were wrong about something, be quick to own it, to apologize and lead in humility that way, and lead by example. Don't just sit down and bark at the kids and tell them, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, the, the secular uh, um, caricature of wives submit to your husband would be a husband plopping down in his easy chair and barking over, bring me a sandwich, bring me a beer, bring me the remote, bring my slippers, bring my pipe and bowl and Fiddler's Three, right? This, and this is just, again, this... this kind of this uh, Archie Bunker type of uh, mentality. This is not what submission is supposed to look like in the Christian home. Husband lovingly leads his family. And the wife, as a response to the Christ-like love her husband is modeling, submits this leadership. Children see the example of their parents who make a habit of Bible study and prayer and speaking God's word over them daily. And the hope and the prayer and the expectation is they will follow the God that we are following. All right? So then here's where it gets really interesting here. When we get to the bondservant thing. Let me, uh, let me read this part again. Bondservants, 
Obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. I'll stop there just long enough to say that's a great way of getting over workplace frustration. You don't like your boss. You don't like your job. You think it's stupid what, what you're having to do. Just remember you're doing it for God who sees it. Nothing goes unnoticed. He doesn't, he doesn't miss it when a sparrow falls to the ground. He's not going to miss it when you are suffering in the workplace. Just work as if Jesus were your boss. Because sometimes bosses can just be irritating. You know you're smarter than they are. You know what they have. It's inefficient. But you are doing it because the boss told you to. And Jesus is the one who rewards you. Makes it easier to get through. All right? But then he goes on to say, uh, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for, uh, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. This is what's so interesting. This idea of partiality, uh, uh, and it most famously appears in James, where you know, God is no respecter of persons. It's almost always in the, uh, uh, the sense of uh, reminding the rich person, the VIP, that God doesn't hold them in any special regard just because they're rich. Just because they're a master. It's always, almost always, a warning to the rich not to mistreat the poor. It's also a warning to the poor not to uh, worship the rich. Or, or to, uh, in, in James's case, hey, when, when a rich man comes into your assembly, into your church, don't give him the seat of honor just because you're trying to impress him. Or, or fawn over him or win him over. God doesn't hold him in any higher regard than the poorest one of your congregation. Here, in fact, this is such the norm that some people have wrestled with this passage, thinking it can't possibly be saying this to the bondservant. We've gotten something mixed up here with the translation, and this warning is supposed to be attached to the next guy, the master. It's not. This is written to the bondservant. Well, how can the bondservant do evil to the master? By cheating, by not doing the things he just told him to do. You submit, you obey, you do what you're paid to do, you do it gladly, you do it like you're doing it for Jesus, and you don't cheat, you don't steal. Folks, employees now, you don't get to cheat your boss with the time card by slacking off, by embezzling. The, the idea here is the bondservant might be really poor, and he might be working for a really rich master who could afford to pay him a lot more than he is. You might even be able to make a legitimate case that the, the master is ripping off the bondservant. And we hear this all the time. The boss is making literally a thousand times more than the floor employee. Therefore, what's wrong if I just take a couple pieces of this product home with me. If I get a friend to, to take my time card and punch out for me as I leave early. It, it, it all really, it's justice. Paul says it's not. He says it's evil. Do you know what's evil about it? It's a lack of faith. It's a lack of faith. It's saying, I can't possibly make it. My needs won't be met. I can't prosper unless I take matters into my own hand 
and rip off my boss. In Paul's writing, as, as the Holy Spirit is saying, you do not lean on your boss for your provision. You'll receive your inheritance from me if you do the work as unto me. Just remember, ultimately, I'm your boss. But then he does turn right around to the masters and say, you don't be the kind of boss that inspires or tempts your bondservants, your employees, to embezzle and cheat you in the first place. You give them what they're due. You give them what they're worth. Because guess what? You might be the boss here, but you have a boss there. And you will answer to him. And these are his his children work for you too. All right. Now we really are wrapping this up. In, uh, let's move on in Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. And this is really the final big thought before he goes to a kind of an extended cl- uh, closing. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Uh, I love the, uh, the continuing earnestly in prayer being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. There's a double emphasis there. All the behavior stuff, all the things I'm telling you to do, how to live your life, all of this has to be bathed in prayer. This is the lifeblood of the Christian experience, the Christian life. We must be praying. But don't pray, don't get carried away with desperate pleas to God. Don't let your prayers be characterized by complaint. What is it that should characterize our prayer more than anything else? Thanksgiving. Always in the middle of whatever it is you're praying for, any request you're making, always, always, always remember to be thankful for what he has done. God, you are so good, so good, so good to me. And then when he says praying, uh, praying for us also, for doors of opportunity. This, again, is Paul's heartbeat. We just want more opportunities, more open doors to speak the gospel. Remember what the mystery is. It's simply bringing the Gentile, word, or Gentile world into the family of God. There is a, a thing. I've got to be very careful about this because I've gotten very few details, but some of you might know about it, and you might know more than I do. Um, but there's a community 24 hours of prayer coming up in October. Anybody know anything about this? Uh, my concern with it is I, I was speaking with one of the people who was organizing this and reading through the list and having a couple, couple conversations. There is not that I can see any emphasis at all on praying for the lost. It's all about getting along, community, fellowship, tolerance, this sort of thing. Uh, and it doesn't mean we can't participate and pray our own thing. But this is the center of the message. When we are praying for the world, yeah, I, man, my heart is broken when I see pictures of starving children. I want the world to have food, clothing, and shelter. But my number one concern is I want them to have Jesus. I want them to be in the family of God with me. 
And this is what Paul is praying. And then moving from that thought, he talks about this. uh, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. We have to remember that this really is a division now. Remember the Old Testament division, and it's very clear. And the Old Testament makes no apology. There were Jews, and then there were the nations, the world, the Gentiles. It was a real division. And now the Jews and Gentiles both are invited to the cross. And anybody who confesses Christ then is in Christ. And so now the two divisions are those in Christ and those outside. But it is a very real difference. It is not being elitist. It is not being intolerant. It's simply recognizing this is real. There are outsiders. There's nothing wrong or hateful. It's not a mistake to identify an outsider as an outsider. The problem is if we, if we use that outsideness as an excuse to be hateful, that's not our job. Our job is to bring those on the outside to the inside. That's why Paul said, let your, let your speech be graceful, seasoned with salt. You want to be attractive. You want to make the inside attractive to the outsider. It is not us against them. This whole world was outside when God gave his only begotten son. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we are not going to win them by being antagonistic. Peter will hit this very, very hard. And uh, you've heard me preach this about keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. is one of my favorite sermons to preach. I won't preach it right now. But finally... Paul closes with, like I said, an unusually long list of personal remarks and greetings. Usually there'll just be a couple things. Hey, so-and-so's here with me. We both say hi. We both love you. Somebody, he'll he'll deliver this letter. Now he's got a list of people, and I'll just, uh, we're not going to read them. I'll I'll just mention uh, who he mentions. We've got Tychicus, who is mentioned in Acts 20 uh, as a companion of Paul. And he's going to communicate with the Colossians about Paul's condition and, and on Paul's behalf. Onesimus is mentioned there. He's with Paul, getting ready to head back to Colossae. And we will hear about him in which book? Philemon. Philemon. Uh, uh, Aristarchus, who was, it's, he's identified here as a fellow prisoner. And uh, did a little research on this guy. We don't know a lot about him. Uh, he is mentioned in, in the book of Acts as well. Acts 19, I think. Uh, but there's, uh, there's pretty... Uh, there's difference of opinion, but the bulk of opinion seems to believe that Aristarchus was not convicted like Paul was, but that he voluntarily stayed with Paul. Uh, and, you know, this again, this is a kind of house arrest. Paul didn't have the freedom to, to move about, but he wasn't literally chained to a wall. Aristarchus probably could have, could have moved about, but he stayed there loyally with Paul as a fellow prisoner. That's, uh, that's some kind of friendship and brotherhood right there. Uh, next guy we see mentioned is Mark. Mark. This is Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark, by the way, John Mark. And so it's nice to see them. We have a hint here of some reconciliation. You remember, uh, Mark and, uh, Mark was a cause of division between Paul and Barnabas. And so ended up Barnabas and, and Mark went one way and Paul and Silas went another. So it worked out good because more of the gospel was spreading more and more. But now, uh, Mark and Paul have reconciled. There's a guy named Jesus Justice. 
be it. If we ever have another son, Beth, I want to name him Jesus Justice Millis, okay? No? Okay, maybe we shouldn't be having this discussion in front of the whole church, right? Okay, anyway. Jesus also called Justice. We know nothing really about him. Epaphras, we met him at the beginning of this book, likely uh, the guy who served more or less as the pastor there of the Colossians. Luke, the beloved physician, of course we know him, uh, frequent companion of Paul and the author of Luke and the book of Acts. Demas, he mentions, uh, he's, he's in good shape here, he's with Paul, but Demas, uh, if you, might, you might remember, doesn't end well. He leaves the ministry in pursuit of the things of the world, and uh, that's according to 2 Timothy. Now, as we will read in 2 Timothy, Paul laments this, Demas has left me, having an affection for the things of this world. Uh, I am hopeful that Demas got turned around and came back. Uh, we don't see this. We don't see a record of it. Second Timothy was Paul's swan song. He didn't, he didn't, <laughs> Paul was very near death at that time, so maybe he didn't live to see Demas turn around. All I know is the last word we have on Demas is not a good one. Uh, Nymphus is named, but in, the old, in some of the oldest manuscripts, it's actually Nympha, which would mean a woman. It says Nymphus and, uh, and his house. Uh, very strong evidence that it's actually Nympha and her house. I'm not going to get deep into this, but some people use this one small reference as, uh, as a, to point out that there were female pastors in Paul's day. And then he mentions, hey, uh, share this letter with the Laodiceans, and you read the letter that I wrote to them. We don't have that letter. It's just an interesting reference that Paul made, that he wrote a similar letter to the Christians in Laodicea. Uh, Archippus is also mentioned in Philemon, another guy. And why is any of this stuff important? There's no doctrine here. It's just a list. It's a, it's a list. They could have cut this off and we still would have had the heart of Colossians. But I love that it's there. Because number one, it shows, well, it, not most importantly, but the first thing it, it demonstrates to me is this personal warmth. And it makes it a real letter. It's not just some guy sitting down, charting out the doctrinal ABCs of Christianity. This, uh, these personal greetings and, and specific references to specific people just make it so real. And uh, I also like it because there's this internal consistency. When he mentions these real people, we get the opportunity to cross-reference it with his other letters and with Acts and, uh, and make identify. Oh yeah, this is that guy. This is that guy. Oh yeah, I remember why he mentions him here. Uh, And it just really makes it, drives home the point that this is all one story. These isolated letters, if all they had was doctrine and no people in them, we would just have that. They would still be valuable to us. But when he talk, when he makes these cross references to other cities, other towns, other people, we see that this is seamless. He is telling one story. God is. God is weaving all of these things together so that we have this great big letter from God. And I don't believe that you see anything like this. Praise and worship team, you can be coming up here. You don't see anything like this in the so-called holy books of other religions. It's really a marvelous testimony to the creative God that we serve and how he uses simple human correspondence to preserve His inerrant word. He didn't just lock Paul up in a closet 
cause him to go into a trance and then just take over his body and write. He used Paul's heart, Paul's relationships, Paul's situations. Again, Paul was a guy who always wanted to be on the move. Every time he sits down to write a letter, what's he? I long to be with you. God willing, I will come see you. Prison itself slowed him down enough to write these letters. And God used that to get this doctrine to us and yet still preserve the warmth and the personal nature of Paul and his relationships. All to say that God went to a lot of trouble. wasn't trouble for him. But God very deliberately orchestrated things for us to have this even today, thousands of years later. So the question is this, as you stand up, what are you going to do with it? The Bible is a remarkable book. A remarkable library of books is what the Bible is. And it has been miraculously preserved for us. We are blessed in ways we can't begin to appreciate just by having this Bible. Let me tell you a quick story. Pastor Mike and I went to a uh, play the other night. We're, we're of the cultured set, you know. We're, you'll often see us at the opera house. Uh, no, I'm kidding. But we, we had a fr- friend of mine co-wrote a play, a two-man play, uh, about two gentlemen in the colonial era. One of them is a guy you may have heard of named Benjamin Franklin. And the other guy you surely heard of named George Whitfield. You guys know who Whitfield was? Whitfield was the, Whitfield and Franklin were really the two most famous guys of their day. And we're talking pre-revolution, okay? He was the Billy Graham and then some of his day. Whitfield and Wesley were hands down, far and away, the two most famous preachers in the world. As famous as you could possibly be without TV and radio. And, uh, what made them so interesting is, you know, the, coming out of the typical religious backgrounds, they were, the message they preached, very, very similar to our modern gospel. They were some of the first evangelicals. And the crowds, uh, one of the more famous incidents uh, was uh, uh, Whitfield had claimed or a claim had been made about him that he had spoken to crowds of 25,000. This isn't days before microphones, okay? Franklin, being a scientist, thought that was absurd. So he went to one of uh, Whitfield's meetings and listened. And then he'd walk half a block away, listen some more, walk half a block away until he was, how far away? Quarter mile or something like that? And he could still hear him clearly. And so he drew an imaginary semicircle that far away from Whitfield and determined that he could easily have spoken to 30,000 people at once. And then he published his results in his newspaper. Whitfield and Franklin became great friends. I'm bringing this up because of what I see and hear about let your conversation be seasoned with grace. Franklin was a deist. He wasn't a Christian. We don't have any particular reason to believe that he became a Christian but he became very good friends with Whitfield they defended one another when Franklin went through a tough time Whitfield defended him when Whitfield went through a tough time 
Franklin defended him. Franklin published all of his tracts, all of his sermons, uh, built him up in his newspaper. They were close. And that excites me because I cling to the hope that on, as Franklin got nearer to death, I know this, I know this, he heard the gospel. And you never know what somebody's going to believe or confess in their last moments. I'm saying that if Franklin did finally yield to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, he did it because of his friendship with Whitfield. It, that you don't have to be a Whitfield. You don't have to be a Wesley. You just have to let your language, your words be seasoned with grace. You don't compromise what you believe. Whitfield never did that. This play is worth seeing. We, we might have him in here. It's not the most exciting thing. It's, it's conversations, a lot of dialogue and monologue. But we might host that here because I think it's a great example of two guys with opposing worldviews really bonding in friendship. The sad thing is, uh, Joe Thomas, the, the guy who this play was his brainchild, was talking about how he had been invited to the U of I to speak to a journalism class. So these are some of the brightest minds. And there were 35 of them in this class, and he was talking about journalism, so he was talking about Ben Franklin in his printing press, and he said, how many of you know who, who George Whitfield was? Zero knew who George Whitfield was. Now, now, this is something that's a little bit scary. I had to read Whitfield as a college student because of his importance to the colonial era. Where, how has he been erased from this? How does nobody know, in a class of 35 college students, how does nobody even know the name? I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but something seems deliberate about that. Meanwhile, Whitfield or no Whitfield, Franklin or no Franklin, we've been given this mission, this message. We share it. We share it. i got to be real careful about this. Let your words be seasoned with grace, seasoned with salt. Be charming, be delightful, be winsome. But never forget, <laughs> your friendship, you can't just say, well, my main thing is just to be their friend. Your main thing is to get them saved. And so there, there's a Wesleyism for you. You have nothing to do but save souls. Don't lose track of that. Your friendship might very well be the vehicle. But don't say, well, I'm afraid if I share the gospel, I'll lose their friendship. Your friendship's doing them no good. Only the gospel will do them good. So don't be afraid to share it. All, all Paul's saying here, and all what, I would recommend, what I would say, and I've said it before, you don't start a relationship by beating them over the head with everything they're doing wrong. Be their friend first. God will straighten them out. His word will straighten them out. you got to hear Wednesday's message because there's a great specific example of that that I heard I shared not going to share it now meanwhile what are we going to do with the word of God everybody in here saved if you're not please don't let the next couple minutes pass you by if you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord then he's not going to be your savior there is a heaven or a hell awaiting everybody in here. And those who go to heaven are those who say, I need what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.